Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, open over to Luke chapter 3, 23. Luke chapter 23, or yeah, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, where you can follow along on the Version app as well. And while you're getting there, uh, I just want to, before we get started, I just want to say thank you again uh, for my uh, brother Nate uh, coming and uh, sharing the word last Sunday. I appreciate uh, him for his, not just his willingness to do that, but his encouragement and uh, just advice that he's given me. So I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for coming and doing that. And I I appreciated the words he shared and this idea of being unified together in Christ. And that's something I've been thinking about all week is how do we, how do we stay the way we're supposed to unified in him? And so uh, an important word. And uh, so we were out of Luke last week. And before uh, last week, we finished, or we started Luke chapter 3. We read about John the Baptist and his uh, ministry and you know how he came in and was preaching a, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness and was uh, calling people to think about the one who was to come, preparing the way, making the way straight for the or the one who would come after him. And uh, we see that he ends up you know paying the cost for that. He ends up being arrested for sharing the truth and. Uh, you know, that's a thing that happens sometimes when we share the truth. There is going to be a, a cost to, to preaching the truth, but it's important that we do it. But that leads us into where we are this morning. And, you know, this is one of those parts of our text that if we were to be honest and do like a family feud type survey, um, you know, how... And I just ask you to be honest, how often do you read this part of the text Many would say, well, we kind of read through it as fast as we can to get out of it, but there's a lot of names, and it's confusing, and, you know, if a lot of people are honest, they would say that they just kind of skip over the genealogies. Like, I don't, I don't, it's just a bunch of names, and it can be quite confusing. I just, I'm just not even going to bother reading it. But I want to contend this morning that these genealogies are essential. They're essential reading. They're important. And yes, I understand the confusion that they can cause if, you know, just looking at it on the surface. If you ever come into my office and, you know, visit or, or you know, hey, i got to tell you something real quick. You may notice they're hanging on my wall is this. And this uh, was something that my parents, I'll show you the other side here in a second. <laughs> this is something that my parents found at like a thrift store or a yard sale or something for just a couple of bucks, but this is a genealogy, or a bunch of genealogies, a bunch of different timelines. Right down the middle is the line of Christ, and then there's all these other, like, side, I'll do the side lines, and it can be quite confusing, can it? But, again... I believe that it's essential reading and important for us to understand these. Uh, Scott Slayton said in his Gospel Coalition article, How Do I Deal with the Genealogies? said that genealogies challenge every Bible reader and every expositor 
but they also yield the fruit of a greater grasp of the biblical narrative, a greater confidence in the promises of God, and a greater appreciation for the grace of God. Like all other scripture, the genealogies bear the stamp of divine inspiration and equip us for good works. We have to just, or we just have to develop the eyes to see it. And so this morning, as we go through this list of names, I want us to see that these names are important in these texts. These genealogies are important. And so we're going to be in verse 23 through 38. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Cody got a volunteer to come up and uh, read the text. And so I just wanted anybody who wants to come up here and read this list. No, I'm kidding. I, uh, I did tell JP and Brad to be on standby because I might have them come up and read. We can take turns. Uh, this is what we'll start in verse 23. And it says this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Malachi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the son of Neri, the son of Malachi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mila, the son of Mina, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And I hope you know how, off, how hard I tried to practice pronouncing these names. Listen to the, the Bible app over and over and over and over again this week. But here we see at the very beginning of this, Jesus beginning his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And this is really interesting because when you read through the Old Testament, 30 seems like this number of beginning. We see it with Joseph in Genesis 41:46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 1.1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chaber Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. And so this age of beginning, 30, and we see Jesus come on to the scene, and he begins his earthly ministry at the age of 30. 
And then we see Luke break up his narrative with a genealogy. And there's usually three kind of main questions we can ask this morning from our text. The first one, what was the purpose of a genealogy? Second one, what's the difference between this and Matthew's genealogy? And then third, who, is there, who does this lineage belong to? Whose lineage is Luke using here? So the first question, why genealogies? You might be reading this list of names, and you might be wondering why in the world are there genealogies in the Bible anyway? Couldn't we just cut those out and just get to you know, the things that we need to know? Why do we need to have genealogies? Well, genealogies are actually very important and serve a very important role in Scripture. So an example of this, a genealogy was used to point to God's work in a group of people. We look at the genealogy and we see how God would work and move in certain people and how, you know, they would either follow God and trust God and have relationship with God and how God would work through his family. Or we see the opposite, how, you know, people would choose to stray from God and how that would affect their family line. We see how God worked through people. Another important thing was that a genealogy would kind of show uh, the character of a line. It would show, you know, this is what happened when this person followed God. This is what happened when this person chose not to follow God. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. Think of some of the examples in the Old Testament of people who strayed from God and how their line ended up being affected by that. Another big reason that there, we have genealogies as a genealogy helped to point to a biological successor. And this one is particularly important for many different reasons. Uh, for starter, property was distributed based on family affiliation. So depending on who your family was, you would have this genealogy to show who got the land, who inherited uh, this property. Another important reason, Aaron's priestly line demanded biological affiliation. Nehemiah points out that the priest who could not prove their ancestry was considered unclean and could not participate in their priestly duties. Uh, Nehemiah 7, 64 through 65. These sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Another reason for this Genealogies would, in a way, help to keep the lines clean. You knew your genealogy, you knew your family line, and you knew the lines of others, and you knew, okay, we were not to intermarry. We were told not to be a part of this line or to mix these lines. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Another reason that this one was important, Jewish military was set up by tribes. They would use the, the genealogies, the lines, to set up their uh, military. Another reason, temple taxes and offerings were set up by family lines. 
Lastly, David's kingdom of Judah always relied on direct succession. So genealogies were important for various reasons. And that leads us to the second question. What is the difference between this genealogy and Matthew's genealogy? Well, the main difference between them is Matthew begins with Abraham and moves towards Jesus with three sets of 14 generations, Abraham, David, exile. Luke begins with Jesus and works back all the way to the beginning, works all the way back to Adam. Luke traces David's line through Nathan, while Matthew traces David's line through Solomon. And as a matter of fact, these lists are two really completely different lists. The only two names that appear in the same order are Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, and Luke 3, 27. Luke's list contains 40 progenerators between David and Christ. Matthew only has 26. And then there's one other big one we'll talk about here just in just a bit. But this leads us to question number three. Whose line is this? Whose line is this? Who's, is it talking about Joseph's line? Is it talking about Mary's line? Whose line is this? Well, there are a ton, a ton of theories on this. Whose lineage is it talking about? Whose line is it talking about? And they are all very technical, and they can cause a lot of confusion based on which scholar you're reading, which commentator you're reading. There are so many different views, but I think the main views come down to this. Matthew's genealogy was tracing Joseph's line, while Luke was tracing Mary's line. Now, the reason for this, one, you say, well, Mary's not mentioned in Luke's genealogy. Well, Mary's name wouldn't really ever be mentioned because it wasn't common for a woman's name to be mentioned in the genealogy. The genealogies often traced the males. What's odd about this is when you look at Matthew, he includes four women in his genealogy. Then uh, Matthew was writing to the Jews. The Jews were his target audience, and their concern was, does this Messiah, does Jesus have the credentials? Is he from the lineage of David? And that lineage would legally come through Joseph. For Luke, we find that Luke's preoccupation up to this point has been very much with Mary. And because his preoccupation has been so much with Mary, it appears that he likely got his early data and information from Mary. And so it's very possible that Luke is giving us the family history of Mary, who also, by virtue of her father, is a descendant of David. That would help solve some of the difficulties. Like I said, if you want to dig deeper, there are a ton of different theories. You can ask me about them. I'll share some of the ones that I read, but this seems to be the main, the main kind of thought on who this lineage is. And I think that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is when we're talking about the differences and you look at Matthew's order versus Luke's order. Again, Matthew is showing us the, the Jewish credentials of Christ. He came from the line of Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation. Luke is taking this all the way back to Adam. Adam is the son of God, and this fits the narrative that we have seen in Luke's gospel for a while now, that Jesus was not just for the Jews, but for everyone. He was for the Jews, he was for the Gentiles, for the Greeks and the Romans. Jesus is the new Adam, as Nate pointed out last week. 
And so here's the question that I want to answer this morning. Why are genealogies important for us today? You might be reading these names and you might be thinking, okay, genealogies, they served a particular purpose at a specific, or particular time. What can we gain from them today? Why are genealogies so important for us today, all this time later? Well, I've got four things that I think are important for us to remember about genealogies. For starters, genealogies prove the validity of Scripture. Genealogies prove the validity of Scripture. The thing that these genealogies show, these lists of names, show us that these were very real people throughout real history, throughout real time. Not made-up characters, not made-up names, but very real people. Thing, people that have been proven by archaeology. People who have been living in places proven by archaeology and archaeological findings. These names point to the validity, the truth, the trueness of Scripture. And what makes this even more so is that when you read through the genealogies, and we'll talk about this more here in just a bit, but when you read their stories, there's some messed up stories in the genealogies. If you've ever spent the time looking up these names in these genealogies, you would see that there are some really messed up stories, really messed up past in these genealogies. And here's the thing, if this was all fiction, if they just made all these up, if you, people wanted them to believe that this was true, they wouldn't put the bad things in there. Think about it for a second. If you're telling people a story, or your story, a lot of times, if we're completely honest, we don't want to share every detail in our story, do we? There's parts of our story that we say, oh, they don't need to know about that, that we'll just keep that part out of it. That's kind of our, our thing that more than we would care to admit, we don't want people to know all the, the baggage, all of the, the flaws, all of the mistakes. Scripture doesn't hide from that. They mention these people and their mistakes and their screw-ups and their brokenness, and it just points to the fact that the Scriptures are true that they don't hide from that, that this proves the validity of the word of God. We can know that when we see all these names, it proves that the Bible is truly the inspired word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17 reminds us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second reason I think genealogies are important is because genealogies show the importance of family. They show us the importance of the family unit. From the very beginning, the family unit was established. Genealogies show that family was important to God, and the way families were structured and the, the things that they did were important to him. Look all the way back at the beginning, and the family was established. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, man shall leave his father and mother, become united to his wife in one flesh. In Genesis 1.28, they were given the command, right? And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This family unit was created. And look at it. When you read through the Old Testament, when God saved Noah, he saved his family. It wasn't just Abraham that was brought out of Haran, but his whole family. 
The Abrahamic covenant was applied to all males in a household, blood or not, a family practice. Later, when we get to Moses and we read the Ten Commandments, think of two of those commandments and how they protect the sanctity of the family. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Remember the famous verse from Proverbs in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he's old, depart from it. Move to the New Testament, and the idea of protecting the family continues. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is making it clear the stance that God has on marriage. Fast forward. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Colossians three twenty through 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Remember how I mentioned earlier that a genealogy can point to the character of a line? Well, a genealogy shows how God works in those families that put their faith and trust in him, but also what happens when people choose not to put their faith and trust in him or choose to depart from him. Let's look at an example in Genesis chapter 4 in the lineage of Cain. Look at the example. You know, we know what Cain did to his brother. You look at his lineage and you see his lineage impacted by the decision that he made. Look at Lamech. You know, hey, I've killed a man for wounding me, a, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, that Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see, it's obvious that God values family and a solid family structure is so important. So it should come as no surprise to any of us that Satan absolutely hates families. He does. He absolutely hates family. It should come of no surprise to us that Satan wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to turn child against parent, parent against child, and he wants to turn both of those against God. He hates families. He hates marriages. He hates a, a connected, tight family units. And if you need proof of that, just listen to some of these numbers. Various health organizations, various uh, ministry organizations. In the U.S., there is one divorce every 30 seconds, 108 per hour, and 2,600 per day. About 42 to 45% of all first marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. According to divorce statistics in the U.S. published by the National Center for Family and Marriage Research, the average duration of marriage that ends in divorce is 13 years. How about this? 28,258 users are watching pornography every single second. $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the Internet. 
2021, 203,770 children under 18 enter foster care in the United States, a rate of three per 1,000. You see, families are under attack. Families are under attack. Satan is attacking our families. He's attacking our marriages. He's attacking our kids. He's attacking our relationship with one another. He is trying to destroy families. But can I tell you something? I don't think we realize sometimes that we are making it harder on ourselves, And sometimes we don't see how the enemy is working to destroy us from the inside. Let me tell you why I say that. We remove God from the equation. We're removing God from the equation. We're removing God from our marriages. We're removing God from our families. We're taking him out of the picture. And the more and more that you see families moving away from God, the more and more you see marriages moving away from God, the more and more you're starting to see these families collapse. And you might be wondering, how how is it that we are removing God from the picture? And brothers and sisters, the enemy likes to keep us busy, doesn't he? He likes to keep us busy. And the more we get busy and the more we have so much going on and the more there are so many distractions and so many things taking place, the more and more that these things start to distract us and move us away from God, the more the enemy continues and continues to attack And think about it. We just become so busy with all the things that are happening in our life that we just simply don't make time for him. Reflect on your day a little bit, if you will, and I can promise you it would sound something like this. You get up in the morning, you start getting your kids ready for school, you make breakfast, you get them ready, you take them to school, and then what do you do? You go to work. And then you work, and then you go, and you pick up your kids. And you take one kid to practice, and then you come and pick them up, and then you have to take another kid to practice. And then while that kid is at practice, you have to go and get dinner ready. Or, or maybe you're saying, hey, we're just going to eat out because he's got practice and he's got a game. Or, or maybe you've got two or three kids who all have games at the exact same time in all different places. And you're trying to figure out how you guys are going to divide and conquer to get from this place to this place to this place. And then you get everybody home and you're tired and you get the kids ready for bed. And they get all cleaned up and they go to bed and then you've got to get cleaned up and ready for bed. And then you finally go to bed and you look back at your day and nowhere in the midst of this is there any presence of God. And you may be able to think, well, there was this. There there was this moment, but then we get up the next day and we do it again in busyness, busyness, busyness until the point where we can't even recall the last time I prayed. When was the last time I opened my Bible? When was the last time I was in the Word? When was the last time as a family we sat down together and shared a meal with one another? When was the last time we talked about what was happening in our lives? When was the last time that we prayed together, read together? When was the last time that me and my wife prayed together or talked about what was happening? When was the last time we were connected? We take God out of the equation and then we start to ask, why is my marriage struggling? Why are my parents, why are my kids so distant? Why won't they share what's happening? Now, hear my heart on this. I'm not saying that sports or activities or any of those things are bad. I grew up playing sports. I know my mom was driving me from place to place to place. What I am saying is this, 
if we don't prioritize time together, in the word together, praying together, reading scripture with one another, sharing what God is doing in our lives together, if we are not making him a priority, then how do we expect for our marriages to stay strong, for our family lives to stay strong? We can't. And so we need to make him a priority. He needs to be priority number one. While we're planning out all of these things that we have to do for the day, we need to make sure that he is priority number one, that his, his position takes center in our lives, individually and together as a unit. Man, share a meal together. Make time to share a meal together, to sit down with your family and share and you know, pray together. Talk about what is happening in your lives. Make meeting together a priority. On Sundays, on Wednesdays, coming together as husband and wife, coming together and sharing and study of the word. Mondays and Tuesdays individually, men go to Bible study, women go to Bible study. Come home and share with your spouse. Here's, here's something that God put on my heart. Here's something that God is showing me. And we need to remember that man, God loves the family unit and we need to be connected together as a family, connected to him. He needs to be a priority in our lives. If he's not, we can't, we can't ask God, why are all these things falling apart around me if we're not making him a priority? Another reason why genealogies are so important is because genealogies prove that God can use anybody no matter what. This is one of the biggest reasons I love genealogies is because it shows that God can use anybody no matter the situation. He can take the bad and use it for good. He can take those who are broken, sinful, and flawed and use them to do his will. He can take those whom we look at and say, man, they're insignificant and remind us that they were significant to God. Let's look at some of the names and the genealogies and some of their stories. Let's start with an obvious one that's in both. Let's look at David. And look at what David, or look at what God told Saul concerning David in 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. A man after God's own heart. Pretty lofty words to say about somebody. He's a man after God's own heart. And yet he's a man after God's own heart who would later see a woman bathing whom he desired, whom he would sleep with, whom he would get pregnant. Then he would have her husband killed. This is just a pretty big example of what happen, can happen with sinful nature. Also, this woman mentioned is Bathsheba. She's alluded to in Matthew's genealogy, one of the four women found in Matthew's genealogy. Let's look at Judah. Along with his other, other brothers, wanted to kill his brother Joseph. Reuben talks him out of it, but then Judah helps talk them into selling Joseph into slavery. Judah then marries a Canaanite woman, which he's not supposed to. Then he raises two children who were seen as wicked in the Lord's sight. Ur and Onan, they were both, and they both lost their lives for it. Genesis 38 tells us about that. Then after Judah's wife dies, he ends up sleeping with a prostitute who we find out later is his daughter-in-law. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, not married to her. A lot of mistakes. 
that Judah makes, and yet he would be the father of the bloodline from which King David and ultimately Christ the Messiah would come. And the daughter-in-law, that is Tamar, sinned by taking things into her own hands rather than seeking God and waiting. She's also listed in Matthew's genealogy. What about Ahaz? We read about Ahaz in Second Chronicles chapter 28. And it's like Ahaz was given a list of here's all the things that you're not to do. And he just started working his way through them, check marking them. I'm going to do everything that this list tells me not to do. He did not do right in the eyes of the Lord, but walked in the ways of the other kings. He made metal images to the bells, made offerings to other deities in places where he was not supposed to. He even offered his sons as sacrifices. And yet, he's related to Christ. Rahab. And when we first meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2, she's introduced as a prostitute. What a great way to be introduced to somebody. But by the end of it, we see that she both knows and fears the Lord. She hides the spies even though it could have cost her her life. She is found in Matthew's genealogy. And when you, these are just a small sample of names. There's tons of them that you can look up and you can read the backstory of these names. But when you look at the genealogies, notice this. Murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, liars, cowards, and wicked kings are all included. You can study all the names in Matthew and Luke and find a bunch of backstories that are flawed. You see, we see God taking bad people who refuse to follow and use them to bring his son into the world. Look at Luke's genealogy. After Joseph, until we get to Nathan, the son of David, we don't know anything about any of these people. There's nothing about them. Many of the names only appear once, and it's in the genealogy. And yet, they were significant enough to be mentioned by God that he used them, these ordinary, insignificant people, to bring his son into the world. Do you know why I love these genealogies so much? I love these genealogies because I have felt this. I've felt this. This is my battle with the flesh. It has so much to do with self-esteem and the comparison game. And I've I've shared it several times. I've become like a broken record, but it's true. I struggle with self-esteem, and I have felt so often that I am just too broken and flawed for God to have any use for me. There are absolutely better people suited for what God has called me to do. And here's the thing. I know you have probably felt this way as well. You think, man, how can God possibly use somebody like me with my broken past, with my weaknesses, with my mistakes? But here's what I want to remind you of this morning. Scripture reminds us that we have a God who works in weaknesses. He works in weaknesses. He works through weaknesses. It is him who makes us strong. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, and Samuel, all the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Brothers and sisters, I think we spend too much time letting our past failures, our shortcomings, define who we are. We look back at that list of names for just a second and think about this. Abraham made mistakes. David made mistakes. Jacob made mistakes. And yet they were remembered for their faithfulness. And look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hall of Fame of Faith. 
brothers and sisters, we need to take our sin seriously. Yes, we should strive to resist the devil and flee. We don't want to put ourselves in temple situations. We, we don't want to walk into sin. But our sin does not make us unlovable or unusable by God. And at the same time, we do the exact same thing with our credentials or our perceived lack thereof, right? We let those things dictate who we are as well. I don't have the credentials. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go here or here. I didn't do all of this, so I don't have the credentials to do this. Guess what? It doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 or 29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know what I love about the genealogies? They are a picture of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's compassion on broken and sinful and insignificant people like us. This is the beauty of these genealogies. But I saved the last, this next reason for last because I think it's actually the biggest reason. They're all important reasons, but here's the big reason why I love genealogies. God's redemptive plan. God's redemptive plan. Think back to this gigantic board here. Right? Think about how in the very beginning was Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the the world. Man falls. And yet God starts working and orchestrating this plan and name after name after name after name after name, person after person after person down this list. God starts orchestrating. God starts putting the pieces together. Sin falls into this world and yet God has a plan. Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is known as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. God's redemptive plan. And we see it person after person after person after person. God is orchestrating this giant plan to bring about the one who would be the Messiah, the one who would reconcile and restore people back into him. And we see these prophecies about this coming Messiah, where he would be born, how he would be born, all of the details. And one major, major prophecy that would be shared is that he would be from the line of David. Jeremiah 23, 5, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, Isaiah 11, verse 1. All of these point over and over and over again to him becoming or him coming from the line of David. And over and over again, God is working things out to bring about his son, and then it happens. Christ is born and thus fulfills these prophecies. And that brings us back to Luke chapter 3. 
the new Adam, the Son of God, who came, who lived, who entered into the mud and the dirt of our sin, who was tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. He who came and died on the cross, blood poured out, who rose again, who lives today, all so that we can be brought back to God. Brothers and sisters, these are not just a list of names. This is God's redemptive plan put together, orchestrated to bring us back to him. And what's so amazing, we talked earlier about this idea of family. Because of what God has done, we are part of a different family. A family that is not of flesh and blood. A family that is a spiritual family. A family connected together through Christ. Because of what he has done for us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And here's the thing this morning. We can put our faith in him. We can put our faith in him who is the new Adam, Jesus Christ, the son of God. We can give our lives to him. We can follow after him this morning. And maybe you're here and you've never followed him and maybe you've not, you know, you've not had that conversation and that's what you want to do this morning. You want to have that conversation that's the case, you can find me this morning. I'd love to talk with you about it. Find one of our elders. They would love to talk with you about it. And a matter of fact, here in a little bit, we'll have, uh, I'll be up here. There'll be people around. If you need to talk, find somebody. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have just said, I have been holding on to the past. I've been holding on to the past. I've been saying there's no way that God could use somebody like me. There's no way God could love somebody like me. Maybe you've been holding on to those things that maybe this morning you just need to let go of and give them over to him. Or maybe you've just lost sight of him. Right where you're sitting this morning, you can pray. You can come up here. I'd love to pray with you. Find a brother and sister who are next to you. I'm sure they would love to pray with you as well. And man, this list of names is so much more than that. It's validity of scripture. It's God showing how important the family dynamic is. It's, it's God showing that he can use anybody no matter what the past, no matter what the situation. And this is God's redemptive plan orchestrated and put together and worked out for us to be reconciled with him. If this morning you need to talk or you need to pray, please do so as we stand together and we sing.